Chapter Three of One Thing Needful. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. One Thing Needful by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter Three All That Have Eyes to Weep, Spare One Tear With Me. I rise to move an amendment, said Jonathan Boldwood in a deep, strong voice. On the platform! Get upon the platform, Boldwood! roared the crowd. Let's hear thee, man! Thou hast always summit good to say. Bravo, Boldwood! Three cheers for Boldwood! And there was a shout that seemed as if it would rend the roof of the building, a thrill of delight as at the appearance of some favorite actor. The crowd made way for the orator, and the applause grew deafening as he scrambled onto the platform, shook his rough mane, folded his arms, and looked round the assembly, those eyes of his shining like coals of fire. "'You want to hear me speak, friends,' he said in his deep, thrilling voice. "'You shall. You have had plenty of fustian from these gentlemen. You shall have a little bit of sound cloth from me, stuff that will stand wear and tear not devil's dust that will come to bits directly you pull at it." And then he began to attack the Colonel's speech. He took the old, old story, point by point, from the revolutionist's side. He laughed to scorn the old institutions, the old opinions, bishops and peers, church and state, royal sinecures, royal allowances, princely nobodies, useless functionaries. He spoke with the force and vigor of a Danton, with the finesse of Mirabeau. He spoke as a rebel against the Queen, against his God. His finest points were barbed with blasphemy, but he had the audience with him from the moment he opened his mouth. He swayed them as the wind sways the reeds by the river. Your God, the High Church God, the Tory God, made man in his own image, you tell us. If so, he had two images, or you have strangely altered and degraded, mutilated and defaced the image he made. There is man as God made him, free, upright, independent, with all the world before him where to choose, told to live by the sweat of his brow and to till the land, but never told that he should have no land to till, that his brow and every inch of his body should sweat in the grinding toil of the factory that your God's beautiful earth should be shut and fenced off from him by an everlasting park-paling, that his world to choose from should be an endless turnpike road, where he should tramp forever through the dust and heat of summer, through the mud and mire of winter, in the glare of the dog-days, or with his face to the biting northeaster, and with no halting-place but the casual ward, no bourne but the pauper's grave. That is the type of God's noblest work, and the commonest type. Such men are as millions against your thousands, you who toil not, you who spend the wages of other men's toil. God made the toiler, made Adam to work for his bread, his own bread, mark you, sowing and reaping on his own land, for himself and his family, enjoying the first fruits of the land rejoicing in the fullness of the harvest, the fatness of his flock, having his share in all the beauty and the glory of this earth. That was the patriarchal man as God made him. 
and as he might have been this day. For God's earth is wide enough for all who live upon it, if it were not for the ha-has and park-fences. God's earth is not big enough to keep an aristocracy, not big enough to give parks and deer-forests to all the dukes and earls who have sprung from the amours of dead and rotten kings. That is what this earth won't do, and that is what the people of England mean to set their faces against, the profligate splendor of the few who fatten upon the bloody sweat of the many. Aye, my friends, a sweat as bloody as that agony in the garden of which your priests tell us. For it means the gradual waste of life, worn out untimely in unnatural toil, life-blood ebbing away drop by drop in the factory and in the mine, lives wasted in premature old age, children born and bred in dirt, in ignorance and in squalor, in order that a few foolish faces should be topped by coronets and a sprinkling of fine gentlemen should lead the fashions in good manners and bad morals. Can any man among you be simple enough to swallow such a lie as that God's image is reflected in this type of man? No, my friends, these are the sons of Belial, who come among you this night flown with insolence and wine, not to ask you for your suffrages, but to order how you shall vote." He flung back the coarse iron-gray hair from his low, broad brow, and stood like a tower, while the hall rang with applause, varied by timorous hisses from the conservative minority. Where had Lashmar seen him before? What was that interior existence in which this man's face had flashed upon him as it flashed now? But only for a transient span, appearing and vanishing almost in the same moment, flashing past him as if it were in a whirlwind, swept away upon the wings of a hurricane. It was either in that dim, unknown world of a previous life, or it was long, long ago in his earliest boyhood. Yes, he recalled it all now the whole scene stood out before him. It was at the university boat-race. He was a little fellow, with his father and mother on a lawn at Mortlake, a green lawn shadowed by leafless lime-trees. He was clinging to his mother's gown, the poor sickly mother already marked for death, though he knew it not, clinging to her, breathless with excitement, catching the fever of the crowd, scarce knowing what thrilled him so. The crowd and the river seemed to rock under the cold brightness of the March day, as the two boats shot under the bridge, Oxford three lengths behind. "'That big man, number six, pulls like the devil!' cried Lord Lashmar. "'If he can only last, I believe he'll make them win. I never saw such an oar!' He mentioned the man's name, but his son had forgotten that, though he distinctly remembered his father's speech. He had his own little boat on the Avon at this time, and had just learnt to row, so was keenly interested in the feats of oarsmanship. The Oxford boat came past the lawn, gaining upon its antagonist, and then Hubert Lashmar saw the face of the oarsman, a dark, ugly face, strong jaw, broad forehead, beetle brows, but a face made radiant, glorified, godlike almost, by triumph. Oxford was winning. The stroke put on a tremendous spurt, to which number six answered with might and main. 
the boat was almost lifted out of the water. The other oars nerved themselves for a superhuman effort. A great cry of exultation broke from the crowd. Oxford wins! Men thrilled with the delight of having witnessed a miracle, and that Oxford crew was cheered as never men were cheered along the banks of the Thames. This was the man. Number six in the Oxford boat nineteen years ago, and the brass worker yonder, were one and the same. The face was too peculiar a face to be easily forgotten or mistaken for another. Lashmar rose and came to the front of the platform, braving that multitude of eyes, that broad glare of light. But here there were no street-boys to jeer at his deformity. He stood up before men and nature's unkindness was a claim upon the respect of even the lowest among the crowd. He was of the middle height, fairly proportioned from the waist downwards. But the misshapen back, and the neck sunk between the shoulders, too obviously indicated a malformation of the spine. The pale classical features, the slender white hands, the indescribable air of high birth and refinement interested even these roughs of rum. They had heard that this young Lord Lashmar was a student and a poet, something like that Lord Byron of whom most of them had read and heard, whose poetry was familiar to many among them in these days of free libraries and advanced thought. They liked the look of the Lord of Lashmar Castle, though they had pledged themselves to those new ideas which were to bring all such lordlings to their proper level, cancel all old grants of land, reduce all ancient privileges and make the soil of England common property, and all things equal between man and man." He began to speak, and was heard in silence. He had a grave and steadfast manner, a low, earnest voice, which was distinctly heard at the end of that crowded hall, a voice of a very different calibre from that of Jonathan Boldwood, but a voice of considerable compass notwithstanding, and of finest quality. My friends," he began, the gentleman who has just addressed you calls himself your friend, but we all know what the demagogue's friendship means. It means climbing into somebody else's seat upon other men's shoulders. You have heard of Marat, the man whom Charlotte Corday stabbed in his bath, hoping by that one bloody act to stem the torrent of blood which that man was shedding. Now. I am not going to say that Mr. Boldwood is like Marat, or that he would rejoice in that deluge of blood which to Marat was the very wine of life. Mr. Boldwood is an Englishman, and Marat was a Frenchman, and your English demagogue, I am happy to say, is always a very mild translation of the French original. Yet I will venture to say that, if Marat were standing on this platform tonight, he would talk to you very much as Mr. Boldwood has talked. He would taunt you with your daily labor, as if it were a disgrace to work for your living. As if every one of us, queen and princes, cabinet ministers, general officers, great sea captains, lawyers, landowners, painters, poets, musicians, do not toil and bring forth that which we have to produce in the sweat of our brows. Granted that there are the sons of Belial, that there are among the honourable and honoured aristocracy of England a few black sheep. Are there no dusky fleeces, do you think, to be found in the factory? 
Are there no black sheep in the mine? No idlers and malingerers battening upon the toil of others? The warp and the woof of society are woven upon the same lines, my friends, from one end of the fabric to the other. And those who pray to you of equality pray to you of something that never has existed and never can exist. Were Cain and Abel equal before God? No. The Almighty blessed one and cursed the other. Were Jacob and Esau alike in their fate? Or were the fortunes of Joseph and his brethren equal? Is nature equal in her gifts? I stand before you, my friends, this night a living instance of nature's inequality. Shall I blaspheme against my God because it has pleased Him to make me different from my fellow-men? No, I accept my burden, as other men must needs accept theirs. Be sure there is something in every shoe that pinches the wearer. What I have to do, and what we all have to do, is to make the best of the world we live in for ourselves and for each other, improving away evil, gently and by degrees, not by rapid wrenches and volcanic upheavals, but in the gradual ripening of the days and years, clinging to all that was good in England's past, and discarding all that was bad. Lopping off the withered branches, but zealously guarding the tree. And that, I take it, to be true conservatism, and a truly liberal conservatism." There was considerable applause from the conservative minority after Lord Lashmar's speech. Boldwood sat facing the audience, his arms folded upon the back of a chair, glaring at them from under those bushy brows of his, with eyes that seemed always to shine with the same angry light. Angry at fate, life, fortune a world in which, for him, all things were adverse and cruel. Suddenly there arose a murmur of voices, excited voices in the crowd just below the platform, murmurs in which he caught his own name. And then the word fire. Some men by the corner of the platform were talking about him, looking up at him. He bent down and questioned one of them. "'What's the matter, mate?' "'Goldwins!' You live at Goldwyn's, don't you?" Yes. Goldwyn's is off fire!" The demagogue bounded from his chair, dropped off the platform, and pushed his way through the crowd, muttering as he went, "'My God! And that child! Locked in her room on the fourth story!' He clutched a man by the shoulder. "'What about this fire?' he gasped. "'Is it true? Who brought the news? When?' "'Not five minutes ago. There was a lot has run off to sea.' There was a lot of them here, a lot of Goldwyn's people." Boldwood waited to hear no further, but pushed his way on to the door. The news had wrought confusion in the hall already, and the crowd was surging outwards. There was a greater excitement, a fiercer fever of emotion to be had out of doors than the finest speaker could offer within. A great fire was one of the spectacles which Brum most enjoyed. Goldwyn's was a gigantic building on the eastern outskirts of the town, on that side most remote from Lashmar Castle. A huge model lodging-house, built some years before by a friend of humanity, who only required nine per cent for his capital. It was a huge caravansary, and swarmed like an anthill, for it was better than the dens and hovels of the slums in the heart of the town, inasmuch as it was wind and weatherproof, which they were not. 
the rents exacted for the rooms were high, and it was only the more prosperous of the working classes who could afford to live at Goldwyn's. Boldwood had a couple of rooms there, two little square boxes on the fourth story, one with a fireplace, the other without. He had made the room with the fireplace his little daughter's bedchamber, while he himself slept and for the most part lived in the cold. There was a common kitchen at Goldwyn's where the inmates could get anything cooked, and there was a common laundry where the women compared their rags and told each other their troubles, and there was a club-room where the men smoked and talked politics and played dominoes, a hotbed of advanced socialism. To the dwellers in the slums Goldwyn's seemed a lordly mansion, and to live at Goldwyn's was a distinction. It was a huge quadrangular building, six stories high, with a courtyard in the center, a monster pile of ugly yellow brick, pierced with windows all of one pattern, opening on to covered balconies with iron railings, everything straight and square, and flat and uniform. A huge cube of brickwork it looked from the distance, as seen across the level of the flattest, dreariest outskirt of Brum, uglier than factory or jail or workhouse. To those wealthier citizens whose prospect that huge bulk defaced, it seemed a monstrous blot upon the horizon. The beneficent Goldwyn had bought a couple of acres of waste ground for a song a quarter of a century before, and when a great cry had gone up to heaven from the penny newspapers about the way in which the poor of Brum were lodged, Mr. Goldwyn had stood up at a public meeting and pledged himself to build a model dwelling which would be as the workman's paradise. While the building was in progress, Mr. Goldwyn was one of the most popular men in Brum. It was only when his house was finished, and his scale of rents made known, that his popularity began to decline. But although the rents were high, Goldwyn's was always full from roof to basement. The meeting ended amidst confusion, and the last speeches were unheard. The news of the fire had reached the platform and Lord Lashmar knew that the radical leader had rushed away to see to the safety of his child. Even her ladyship's sympathies were roused by the tragedy of the scene. "'To think that such a creature should have so much human feeling!' she exclaimed. "'I hope his people will not be burnt!' She had not grasped the fact that the demagogue's people were comprised by only one child. "'I think, mother, if you'll allow me, I'll stay and see the end of this business after I've put you into your carriage," said Lashmar. I can get a fly at the George to take me home. I'll stay with you, said Colonel Spillington. And I, cried Victorian. No, Victor, I will not have you struggling in a brum crowd, exclaimed his mother. And you, Lashmar, you would not certainly be so foolish as to trust yourself amongst those roughs. They would be safe enough with me," said the Colonel. But the young one can go home with your ladyship. Lashmar and I will see it out." Lady Lashmar remonstrated. She offered to wait at the hotel until her stepson was ready to go home with her. But to this Lashmar would not consent. He took his mother to her carriage, and saw a Victorian seat himself beside her, very reluctantly. The boy was longing for an adventure he felt that it was in him to do the work of twenty hireling firemen. The engine came tearing down the street while the carriage stood there, frightening the big bays out of their wits. 
The firemen looked like demons. The street boys yelped and whooped as the vision of flashing metal and dark resolute faces rushed by. And to have to turn one's back upon that fever of excitement and go home to supper with one's mother. It was hard for the impetuous young Eaton, strong in the overweening confidence of youth. The barouche drove away through the summer night, drove away from the smoke and grime, towards fields and dewy hills and flowery hedgerows. Lashmar and the Colonel got into a handsome cab, they have had hansoms in Brom for the last twenty years, and told the driver to go to Goldwyn's as fast as he could pelt. Driver and horse were both excited, and rattled off at a tremendous pace. There were half a dozen streets, and an arid waste of market-gardens, and ground newly plotted out for building, to be traversed before they reached the scene of the fire. Unmade roads, stretching to the right and the left ghost-like in the moonlight. Here a factory, and there a shabby genteel terrace of new houses, and anon a row of allotment gardens. But straight in front of them they saw Goldwins, like the fiery pillar in the desert, a monstrous pile, vomiting smoke and flame. "'The fire must have gained ground terribly before the engines arrived,' said Lashmar, leaning forward over the doors of the cab, with his eyes intent upon that flaming bulk yonder. Engines never are in time to do any substantial good," answered Spillington. How lucky the fire did not happen in the middle of the night! People would be up and about, unable to help themselves. But the children, cried Lashmar, almost with a moan of anguish, the little children, left alone in that tower of Babel! The careless young mothers roaming the streets, the fathers listening to Boldwood! Perhaps you don't know the kind of mothers that are made out of factory girls. God help the little children! I'll warrant there were dozens of them left to take care of themselves in that big house tonight. That's a horrible idea, muttered the colonel. And he felt that there was only too much ground for Lashmar's fear. They were in front of the house by this time, a dense crowd between them and the building. Wait! said Lashmar to the cabman as he alighted, and he and Spillington pushed their way through the mob. It was a moment of breathless excitement. The engines were on the other side of the building. The fire escapes were in full action. But they could not be everywhere. Lashmar had conjectured rightly. There was a swarm of children in that human hive, and the mothers were rushing about distractedly, pleading to the firemen, to the crowd, to the empty air even, to save their little ones pointing wildly to the windows. There, there, that one on the fifth floor, the seventh from the end. That one by the broken rain-pipe. Oh, curses on these tall houses, where the children could be roasted alive and no help possible!" The fire had broken out suddenly, with an astounding fury. It was all the work of an hour, but the mischief had been slowly working for long silent days and nights. The brickwork of that huge shaft which went up from the laundry, the common chimney of kitchen, laundry and clubroom, had been red-hot and none knew. They had only felt the warmth and annoyance in the hot summer nights. No one had guessed that there was danger, and tonight at ten o'clock the skirting of one of the rooms next the chimney had burst into flame, and then another and then another, till a great column of flame was rushing up to heaven through the middle of the house 
that central block upon which the initials of William Goldwyn, the people's benefactor, stood out boldly above a great black-faced clock, with white metal hands. A clock that had ticked off the brief intervals of rest to many a toiler, but which would never tick again for dead or living, since the metal that had composed its works was running down the brickwork in a molten stream like quicksilver. Yes, screams and clasped hands and disheveled hair were the livery of all those careless young mothers tonight. Locked in, their children had all been locked in. To hide the Lucifers and to lock the door, that had been the maternal idea of carefulness. Locked in locked in one of those pigeonholes in that great barrack through which the flames were roaring. While the mothers were rushing to and fro, threading the crowd, falling into the arms of strangers to sob out their woe, shrieking in wildest hysteria, or standing white and dumb waiting for fate to strike, there was one father who was acting vigorously for himself, asking help from no man. "'Look at him!' gasped the crowd, as Jonathan Boldwood's huge form scaled the iron balconies, clambered and swung himself from one point of vantage to another, mounting higher and higher, showing a dark moving blotch against the red light that shone all over the building, as it had been in the palace of the setting sun. "'Look at him! There's a man for you! A man with the heart of a lion! His little girl is up in one of them rooms! One of the toppest! The firemen and the scapes are all t'other side of the building. God help him! He'll be suffocated before he gets to that top room." This was about the gist of what the crowd said, in short gasps of speech, loquacious, excited, pitying, but impotent to help, around and about Lord Lashmar. Neither his gentle blood nor his crooked back attracted any attention in that surging mass of anxious humanity all distinctions were for the time blotted out. The strong human instinct prevailed over all class differences and conventionalities. The hearts of Radical and Tory throbbed in perfect unison, accelerated by pity and terror. "'He'll do it!' roared the crowd, and Lashmar's memory went back to that other crowd roaring on the Surrey shore. Roaring from the flat swamps of Chiswick yonder, two voices meeting and blending across the river. "'He'll do it!' cried the crowd, watching that bulky figure, a figure that had lost the litheness of athletic youth, and which pulled itself heavily with the strength of a giant, slowly, laboriously, from iron rail to iron rail, bridging the distance with evident difficulty. "'He'll do it!' and Lashmar remembered the dark face bent over the oar. The resolute under jaw and beetle brow, the dark cropped hair and bull neck, he fancied he could see the face now, turned towards the burning building, lurid in the reflected light. "'One story more, and he's there!' cried the crowd. One more rail to grasp, one last effort to swing himself to the higher level. But before he could grasp the rail, a great wave of flame and smoke rushed out from the shattered windows in front of him, poured over him like black water, and wrapped him in Egyptian darkness darkness flecked with arrows of flame. Then there arose a groan as of Samson when the pillars yielded and the roof fell, the groan of a despairing titan. The crowd reeled backward with a shuddering recoil, and that bulky figure fell in their midst, almost at Lashmar's feet. 
There was no help, no hope. The demagogue's neck was broken. He expired without a murmur. End of chapter 3